A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I am Osher Ginsberg. Happy New Year. First episode for 2014. This is a weekly conversation, this show. It's a weekly conversation with someone that I find truly inspiring. Hopefully, this conversation will leave you truly inspired as well. My goal is to talk with guests that have a great story to tell, guests that have achieved something remarkable in their lives, and through their story, get inspired myself and perhaps inspire you too. Thank you so much for not minding that I was away. I, um, if you'd like to see what I was up to, pop on Instagram, check out Osher underscore Ginsberg. That's Osher underscore Ginsberg, G-U-N-S-B-E-R-G. Because that account is still active. I had a massive Twitter apocalypse while I was away. I am so sorry to tell you that I, foolishly, I used a third-party spam filter uh, just to try and clean things up a bit. I was getting a lot of bot spam. And so I was a bit careless with the uh, spam settings and I accidentally uh, nuked 18,000 Twitter followers. So there's every chance that I have accidentally blocked you. I didn't mean to. I promise it wasn't deliberate. Please don't take it personally. I I clicked the wrong button. I woke up the next day. I had 22,000 followers. Then I had three. I'm so sorry. That's 19,000 Ginsburg who failed maths in grade 12. Me! Uh, So I'm so sorry. Uh, There's every chance I've accidentally blocked you and through doing that forced forced you to unfollow me. That's my fault. I'm sorry. Please come back. Um, If I have blocked you, you can let me know. I'm going to put a link on Instagram. I'm going to put a photo of Instagram saying, I'm sorry I blocked you. And then just personal message me, like just kind of at tag me, you know how you can at tag in, in Instagram, at tag me so I read it uh, with your Twitter handle and then I'll go and I'll one by one, I'll put you all back uh, if I have to until I can come up with a better solution. Um, if you could tweet out a link to it, that'd be great because uh, I'm so sorry, I've masked, I've totally fucked this up. <laughs> uh, they were really right about that whole with great power comes great responsibility thing. Yeah, there's great power there and I used it irresponsibly. So... Um, I'm sorry about that. But I'm still on Instagram, which you can find me there. I hope your uh, holiday was great. I hope your Christmas break was great. If you had one, if you celebrate Christmas or a New Year's break was great. Mine was incredible, um, which you'll see on Instagram. You'll see what I did. I documented what I was doing. I got invited to basically, I got invited to a dinner party with wings. One guy that I know, an incredible man. He's the CEO of a, a, a charter 
uh, flight company uh, running out of Long Island. A great man by the name of Nick Tarasio. Um, he said, listen, I'm, I'm going to, on December the 10th, he sent me an email saying, I'm going to go on a random unplanned trip south. We're going to leave in a six-seater plane. We're going to leave from Long Island on December the 26th. We're going to hopefully end up in Miami for New Year's Eve and then be back here by the 3rd of January. Are you in? And straight away, I said, yes. I said, absolutely, yes. I only knew Nick. I didn't know anybody else. Normally, this, and this absolutely scared the shit out of me. Uh, not because I'm afraid of small planes, but because, you know, I've talked about this. I used to be quite afraid of strangers um, and uh, afraid of people I didn't know. And because it frightened me, I said yes. And this is kind of very much about what I'm looking for this year in 2014. I've been really inspired by two people recently. And considering the new year and considering everything, I thought I'd tell you about it. Um, one of the men I've been really inspired by, Cameron Sinclair. He's one of the people behind Architecture for Humanity. He completely inspired me during his 40th year. He called it the year of yes. And that was his, man his mantra. And so that's what I'm all about. I'm about yes. Yes to adventure. Yes to new things. There's another man I'm really inspired by, Tony Shea. He's the CEO of Zappos. He has an incredible story. Um, Delivering Happiness is his book. He's a remarkable man. He's re rebuilding downtown Las Vegas. Very, very interesting guy. Uh, he talks about collisions. Uh, his line is that research has proved that most innovation happens as a result of something outside your industry being applied to your own. And these things are usually, usually the result of random conversations happening and ideas generated as a result of collisions. So 2014 for me, is a year of yes, a year of adventure, in the hope of colliding with the world, releasing new energy in a kind of nuclear physics level. Like the more I go and do things that I don't normally do, the more I'll collide with the world in ways I normally wouldn't collide with the world and the energy that gets released around that collision will hopefully spur me onto new and different, interesting, fascinating, fulfilling, growth, adventurous energy so that's what i'm all about i'm turning 40 this year i've got nothing to lose it's gonna be good it's gonna be really good i'm sure there's gonna be points where it's not great but you know what i'll tell you all about it each and every monday or sunday if you're in australia or america i mean so let me tell you about my guest today uh he is a remarkable man ben richardson he's the ceo uh, sorry, the general manager of Nickelodeon Australia and New Zealand. You can find him on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at BenLife, B-E-N-L-I-F-E. -E. If you've ever thought about a career in media, this one's for you. If you've ever faced a situation where it's time to drastically change course in your career, when you've been really confronted with a massive decision to make, this one's for you. If you've ever wondered how surfing affects your life when you're not in the water, this one's for you. Really interesting guy. He grew up in North Narrabeen, which is, we talk about this, it's a very territorial surf break in the north of Sydney. And we, we start off with how his life kind of got informed by his experiences surfing there and he moves from there. He was my EP at Channel V. We talk about the, very, the day we very first met. There's three things, or there's many things in this, in this podcast that I just can't wait for you to listen to. Um, but just briefly... He talks about 
what it was like to see Midnight Oil at the absolute peak of their power in 1981. And the description... He's a writer, man. The guy just paints pictures with words. So his description of that is amazing. His first 72 hours in Mumbai after he moved to India, the colors will just flow out of your headphones or your speakers or however you're listening to this. He's just a remarkable guy. And um, I never really talk about this with anyone, but uh, because he was there, we, we went into it. We got into it. We just kind of found our way. This is what I love about these conversations that I'm having. We just organically find our way to these these places that just get unlocked. He and I were in New York on September 11 together, and I have never really talked about that. And he and I talk about what that was like and what happened to us afterwards. Uh, we get pretty deep. He's a really inspiring guy. He has some really interesting uh, views on Australia's role in the world and Australia's relationship with Asia, considering he's lived all over the region and worked all over the region. He's a fascinating guy. I cannot wait for you to hear this. If you like it, please uh, tweet him at Ben Life. If you really, really like it, if you really, really like this show, you can do me a great kindness of uh, retweeting. Just go to the podcast page, osherginsberg.com and click uh, tweet and just tweet out a link to this. And don't forget to go to Instagram and let me know your Twitter handle so I can refollow you. All right, let me get my Steve Britton on. My guest today is Ben Richardson, General Manager of Nickelodeon Australia and New Zealand. We talk about making cutting edge live TV at Channel V, quitting that job and moving his family to Mumbai when his newborn son was two days old the culture of fear in Australian media and the future of education in Asia. He's a friend, a mentor, a surfer, and the only man to have by your side when nearly dying in a riot in Los Angeles or being trapped in New York on September 11. You met me as Andrew. I'm Oshana. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And um, I somewhere have it on video the first time we ever met. It was uh, Night of the Joint. Yeah. Mm. You had a ponytail. Yes. And uh, I remember you came by. I was, I was doing my clandestine job interviews from SAFM in Adelaide. I was leaving SAFM at, after my shift. I was doing, mid, I was doing midday to three, and then they were doing three to six. And so I'd hang out till about five. That day I hangled five fifteen, and I uh-huh. went, "Okay, guys, I guess uh, I guess I'll see you tomorrow." SAFM got in my car, drove a good twenty to thirty kilometers per hour over the speed limit to Adelaide Airport, got to the plane with carry on only with like five minutes to spare, flew to Sydney, got in a cab, flew to Channel V to have a meeting with. Um, our old creative director, Jackie Riddell. Yeah. I remember that night well, actually. I don't remember who was playing, but I remember meeting you because I think it was just in that mad rush before a live show and there's a million things going on. You go, whoa. <laughs> and this is, this yeah. is back and you always... 99? 99. Yeah. It was March, actually February 99. Mm-hmm. And this is actually, because I've always documented my work. I do it photographically now, mm-hmm. but at the time I was doing it all on video. Yeah, I and I knew this is going to be a really important moment in my life. I better film this. Mm-hmm. I filmed it. Wow. I filmed you saying hello to me for the first time. Well, if you know the uh, 
if you know the date, we could work out who was there. <laughs> Everything's documented. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so you and I came to work together. My first day on air at Channel V was uh, April the 12th, 1999. It was a day of that massive hailstorm that decimated the inner west yeah. of Sydney. And um, now you are the general manager of Nickelodeon Australia. And New Zealand. And New Zealand. Let's not forget New Zealand, yeah. You are the general manager of Nickelodeon yeah. Australia and New Zealand. And between now and then, yep. god damn, there's an awful lot of things that have happened. It's been a journey. And I'm really excited to have you on here because there's so many things I want to talk to you about because you're a very influential man in my life in the, how much you taught me about not only what it is to be a man, but also what to do when you're caught in a riot, <laughs> um, what to do when the largest terrorist attack ever to happen to America is happening to you right now. Um, also, um, some of the best things I ever learned about interviewing, I learned from you, but also how you transition, just how surf came into my life through knowing people like you. Because I remember I'd been at Channel View for a little while and all the most calm people I knew were all surfers. It was you, that two cameraman, Brad Davis and Steve yep. Forrest. Mm-hmm. It's like, what do these guys have? Why are they? What, we're doing live television, which is essentially drugging, juggling babies over a sh- pool full of sharks, mm. and these guys are just breathing. Yeah, no, it's. Uh, I always thought about live TV is that the one place in my life that where I'm not surfing where I actually feel incredibly calm. I kind of miss that. I think I don't know what it is about that that fear and that chaos. And I suppose it's like any sort of chaotic or intense role. But I remember just always feeling. In control and calm. And there's so many other areas of life we're not that. <laughs> but at live TV or the way we used to do live TV, it was always, as long as everyone was safe, it was always fun, right? And that was, that's the only thing that you ever worry physically about. Physically safe. Everyone was physically safe, you know, and whether it's dealing with large crowds is always the most stressful part of that. Yeah, which we'll get into. Yeah, but, but dealing even in a studio environment, and I think maybe it was a, you know, it was, a, it was a good having people around. But I think that's what we all learnt through our 10,000 hours. We just got to this point of calm of saying, well, there's nothing's really going to surprise us. And if it does, it's a great moment. I'm so glad you <laughs> mentioned that because I'm going to come back to that again and again. Um, you grew up in Narrabeen, which mm-hmm. is the northern beaches of Sydney, yep. a particularly territorial surf break. Yeah, it is. It was um, my, I was third generation Narrabeen. My great-grandfather was the teacher at the local school. My grandfather and uncle were both stalwarts of the club. I think my grandfather was the, the club secretary for 65 years, one of the longest um, uh, permanent public office holders ever, you know, in Australia, or he used to claim that. You know, my cousin was the art teacher. She taught a lot of people like Aussie Wright art, you know, from back Whoa. in the day. But I, um, I, I'd always lived there, but then I, I did go away for high school. So it wasn't to, to that point of being territorial. My mum had left high school at 15, so she had this whole sense of, you know, how important education was. And she said, there's no way that Narrabeen High School is going to uh, give you the education <laughs> to be a, a fine, upstanding young gentleman. At the time, no one went, really went. That was this is the early 80s. Early 80s. This is sort of, you know, I was in uh, up till, yeah, early 80s, late 70s, early 80s. So we sort of moved into near Chatswood to go to another school. And my sisters, who, you know, were state school kids, it gave me hell. Oh, he's going to a private school. <laughs> but that was my mum's vision that she didn't, you know, like, you know, you were talking about parents, but how your parents don't want you to end up or in the situations that they were. You know, they try and give you control over your destiny. Well, I think generally parents, as you, I'm not a parent, you are, but I think mm. generally you want to, from what I can gather, as long as your kids are one step further up the ladder than you are, you're mm. like, cool. 
Yeah, exactly. And that's that's optimism as well. If, if I really think of, I was thinking about growing up today and, every, you know, you, you think of yourself now in, in terms of it and that we probably think of ourselves as being poor and, but everyone was in that same situation. Mm. No, one, no one went out to dinner. You might go to the fish and chip shop on a Friday or maybe some Chinese, but, you know, single car, walked a lot of places, never went anywhere other than in the car on a holiday. You never got on a plane. Yeah. And, but everyone was like that. And it was Australia at the time, though. I think that was pretty much it. I remember my parents arriving from London just going, well, we could go to the Chinese restaurant on Marshall Lane or we could go to the Chinese restaurant on Marshall Lane because it just wasn't, just wasn't part of the culture. Yeah. And I I think that that was a really interesting time because Narrabeen being very territorial, you miss out on high school and those key school years and you're not a local. Mm. So even though I lived super close to the beach. You're three doors down. Yeah. I was three doors down. I lived there for a long time. I was third generation, but there was that point where I never uh, wanted to, you know, I was never going to be, I never had that desire to be the guy in the pack. You know, I always wanted to explore. I'd walk hundred meters down the beach and, or I'd walk over the headland or all that sort of thing. Um, uh, so it was really interesting, but through doing that and just through being a bit more of a, th- you know, thinking it, thinking it a, a bit more deeply about surfing, I came across some amazing people like um, Derek Hind, who's one of the sort of visionaries of fin-free surfing these days, and Andrew Kidman, who was an editor of Waves before Jesse Fain, who was my next-door neighbour as well. So I just came in cr- across these really amazing people who weren't the stereotype surfers. I, I call them surfers, whereas most people you think of in their surf gear are surfies. That was always my distinction. Right. These guys like were surfers. The difference between bikey and biker. Yeah, exactly. And so um, and it was incredibly amazing. You know, it was really formative to meet these guys who were of a range of ages. And I'd be at the time I was doing a lot of writing and, they, you know, Andrew Kidman knocked on my door and he'd read something and said, oh, I really like this. We write for my magazine and for Waves magazine. And I'd seen him, and he was, he was, he was like an amazing surfer. He was an Australian junior champion, all that sort of thing. But, you know, I think like, Narrabeen always used to surprise me. That's what I loved about it. It always surprised me as much as it was pegged as being very territorial. I never saw really the bad aggro side of it. And, uh, but I just met amazing, amazing bunch of, of time travellers, you know, guys who are really, really rooted in that morning of the earth, that late 60s, early 70s. It's, if and you're, it was if you've ever period. considered surfing, if you mm. surf now and you haven't seen it, you've just, it's fundamental that you watch this. It's like listening to Led Zeppelin 4 or, you know, owning Pearl Jam's 10. You mm. just have to watch mm. Morning of the Earth. Yeah. It's, it's MP, 15 years old, mm. off his balls on acid, mm. and like it's 10 foot barreling. Yeah. Uh, what was that? What's the break? It starts with a K. Well, it's in Kira. In, yeah. No, no, no. The one in, the one in uh, Bali. Where they got the oh. tide came up and they all got too high. They forgot to leave. And so yeah, they had to spend yeah. the night. Ah, oh, it's amazing. And the soundtrack. Anyway, so cut back. Mm. You, so this is the other thing that's really interesting. You were in Sydney at, and you were working in, you were writing for music, writing mm. about music. You mm. were in Sydney at an incredibly exciting time yeah. where surf and music were coming together. You would have been here when Midnight Oil were just, yeah. Yeah. just before they burst into America. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever oh, see well, them? Yeah, I did. I saw, um, I, I had the benefit of older sisters, which was always a, a you know, a, a, a joy as a kid because they always just push you that little bit further, like music-loving sisters. And, you know, whether it was listening to Heroes when, when it came out, you know, by Bowie and listening to that over and over and over. It was back in the time when you'd walk home from school and people would only sort of buy maybe two or three records at the time. 
So now there's a lot of choice, but you'd walk home, they'd be off the wall, and you'd hear it playing out of each, oh, there's a teenager there, there's a teenager there. You know, you'd hear it off the wall, or you'd hear... Playing out of houses. Yeah, out of houses. Yeah. As kids and teenagers were flipping these records and flipping these records, um, I think Rumours by Fleetwood Mac. You know, this is late 70s. Um, but then Midnight Oil... When I, when I lived in the suburbs, midnight old, Peter Garrett lived at the end of my street, and we were all aware who he, who he was. And so we had older sisters who loved them, and they were, they were notorious for playing at Narrabeen. But I remember, I think it was around 81, my first big concert was me and my mates went to see Midnight Oil at the Capitol Theatre, which is available on a DVD. And I remember we just losing our minds. It was, there, was, there was a bushfire in Sydney. We met a mate. We, had, you know, we put on our best King G, uh, King G long slacks and Dunlop volleys, and we were ready to go into the Capitol Theatre. Had a can of beer each, Sydney, a Sydney draft, or one of those beers that have come like and 16, gone. 16, 15? Yeah, yeah. Well, younger. I think I was probably 14, 15. And, and we went to this show at the Capitol Theatre, and Midnight Oil had a really parochial... parochial Northern Beaches, you know, following. And we were kids, like, never seen anything on this scale. But the power of Midnight Oil was incredible. You know, you remember the drummer, you remember the, the rhythm section of Midnight Oil, which is just unbelievable, and then there's sort of Garrett. And I remember just, we didn't, we stayed in our seats and we might have been, like, 15 rows back. And we all just started dancing like crazy guys who couldn't, it was almost like the music took control. We weren't these self-conscious teenagers and we just lost our minds. And, you know, the next morning of that ears ringing, which at the time was exciting in hindsight, I thinking, I wish it, <laughs> but they didn't ring so often. My ears ringing now. Yeah. So I remember that concert. It was just, it was life changing. It was that, to see, a, to, for that to be your first concert is, is just unbelievable. And I, but I think at the time, you know, Midnight Oil were from the beaches, but they weren't necessarily cool. They were very suburban in that sort of suburban pub rock way. They always felt like they stood out. And there's an amazing surfing world magazine I have at home, which is like an eight-page interview with Rob Hurst, pure Q&A, where he's talking about, you know, drumming on, learning to drum on a pillow and all that sort of stuff, which, you know, equates to if you look at the power of him. But then Midnight Oil became sort of uncool as well in the mid-'80s for a kid growing on the, on the you know, commuting. Suddenly well, they went out to the Western Desert and they started going, hey, hang on a second, these Aboriginal folks might like their land back. Yeah, they became a bit, you know, we call them Bogan, Bogan now, and then at the time they were kind of, they were just a little less sophisticated to other stuff that was coming through, whether it was like the Celibate Rifles who were also, you know, right. from, the, from that area area or just sort of the punk stuff, the new way stuff. For me, it's like the latest stuff was the stuff that blew me away. So once Mm. I started talking about, uh, I think Beds of Burning was the first one that I remember really going, hang on, that scary band that all the surfing guys that I'm afraid of listen to have just Mm. released a record that's, wow, something's happened to them. They've gone out, they've had a changing moment out in the Mm. desert and they've come and said, hey, hey, everyone, this stuff's going on and it's, it's not great. But then I remember... I remember U.S. Forces. I remember hearing that song, U.S. Forces. It was like the first political song I'd ever heard. Mm. And just, because again, at the time in Australia, it was just as we were going, oh, no thanks, England. We're going to go with America. Mm. Uh, thanks very much. Yeah. And that was, that was a really big deal. It informed a lot of music at the time. A Ten to One is an amazing record. I remember once again, you're talking about those, we all had f- very few records. Yeah. So someone got 10 to 1 and he made five cassettes, you yeah. know, for all of us to take home. And I remember we just listened to it over and over and just, it was just this step up in terms of power. And if you, you know, power and the passion, that brass where they just really push it and push it and push it. Yeah. So that was the tour. Yeah. It's incredible. Amazing. But I think within, within, 
a year almost, it was starting, we swapped Midnight Oil for The Cure. You know, the yeah. cool kids suddenly got into The Cure and, you know, as a, as a, as a, as a kid, I remember thinking, where do I sit? I still love this, but there's all these other things. And, you know, you get pushed and pulled as a kid into yeah. what's, what's right and what's cool. You know, I always think that about my son is like, you really hope that they can, you know, have their own opinions and things like that. But those Midnight Oil, show, you know, to this day is the unbelievable, most powerful thing I've ever seen. My, actually, my first ever show ever was similarly politically charged. Like my first ever gig, I was 11 years old, I saw Red Gum. Wow, yeah. At the height of when I was only 19 was the, the biggest song ever. And mm. I, I remember just going, what is this? I was in a beer garden in Markula, mm. North, northern Politics is confronting, I think, when you're at that age. I remember the, at yeah. the Midnight Oil show, they had a guy from the Nuclear Disarmament Power Party come out and speak. And I um, People for Nuclear Disarmament was yeah, the Yeah, that was yeah, the party. Yeah. And I yeah. just remember most of the crowd were just confronted and mortified and sort of abusive and Garrity stuff come out and say, you know, I support this. You know? Yeah. Um, but then again, I remember you always telling me, I remember I was just talking about this today with someone that a lot of people get, I get really frustrated when, I don't mind people being centrist and I don't mind people feeling they need to be a bit right. But when you get extreme right-wing governments in power, I get kind of freaked out because I don't know where to sit. But I remember at the time when the George Bush thing happened in 2000, after the Florida election, you just calmed me down. You said, don't worry, man. All the best music comes out of America during a Republican <laughs> government. Well, look at the Reagan years were just the, you know, the, the records that came out of the Reagan years. The Thatcher. Just, phenomenal. The right-wing yeah. government, the Thatcher, the music that came out under Thatcher. Yeah, it was. But I wonder if that happens anymore. You know, I, you know, I, I see research through my job and there is – kids are more conservative. They're not seeing this, this continual growth that we saw up until probably – I don't know, mid nineties or something yeah. like that, and I and I wonder where the political music has gone. You know, it, I, I get personal politics as well, but it um, I'm not I'm not as exposed to it. I'm sure it's out there, but right. I don't see those sort of free Nelson Mandela or some of those Clash songs or something like that, which yeah. just make you sit up and think. And, and maybe all the great what. political music is in Arabic right now, and we can't, oh yeah, absolutely. and we can't hear it. Yeah, we I can hear it, but I we totally just don't agree. understand it. Mm. I'm sure there is. I'm sure there's that story of that bloke in Syria who was horribly murdered and had his vocal cords cut out. Yeah. Because he wrote a song. He was basically, he's basically what the, I read a Washington Post article the other day that called him, he's, he's the Rage Against the Machine. He's a Zach de la Roca of, mm. of Syria. And he wrote this song about Out With Bashir. And, um, I mean, Out With, out with Assad. Mm. And, uh, yeah, they <laughs> murdered him, cut his voice out, cut his voice yeah. box out and... No, I think you're absolutely right. You can imagine yeah. in China, you know, et cetera, just some of the yeah. um, dissident voices. Um, so your path to Channel V is a kind of interesting one because you, you – what were you working at? The Australian Film and Sound Archive? Is that no, right? I was working Where at – um, it was called Film Australia, Film Australia before I joined there. But I'd been um, – Film Australia was a government film body and they, their funding was really the National Interest Program. So that was the government giving the money to make content that no one else would make. So they had all sorts of weird things. I used to look after this um, film archive, and I remember there were things like Donald Bradman teaching people how to drive, and he's in an old sort of Morris Minor or something, and you know, and the greatest and, cricket player in our country, yeah, ever's history, teaching people how to drive. Yeah, and, and there was this there was this huge facility, and we'd find things like we found an old camera with Dean Semler's name on it. You know, um, dancers wolf wall cinematographer. There was Damien Power, the famous World War Two uh, photographer who was in New Guinea, who took all that amazing footage of people being carried in and out. So we'd find all these things in dusty coloured boxes 
boxes and you know it was this amazing job but I think the reason I stayed there for quite a while but really I was trying to make it as a as a kind of a, a writer raconteur and so when I was sort of just in uh when I just left school me and a friend said how do we get free music we love music but we can't afford it so I said, oh, let's start a, we'd, we'd seen a fanzine. Let's start a fanzine and send it off to record labels and see if we can get free music. So I really, we really pursued fanzine writing. And we we're always a bunch of smart asses about writing. It's pre-internet. All you got is a photocopier or a yeah. stapler. And we had a photocopier and uh, in, in my job. So we used to make it, you know, up to a thousand copies. And we started sending them around the world and getting letters and having a PO box. And then some, la- some punk label in DC would send you 10 US dollars for an, and an ad that they had, you know, that, that they'd printed for you and you just put it on the photocopy. And it was kind of lovely, but um, it's you know it's a blog. It's just, it's the same thing, but that sort of taught me to be a bit more of a, a raconteur. I was organising shows because I wanted to be in bands, but I was never really that much into the band. But I loved the experience, and I was trying to replicate things I'd seen in photos from around the world of great gigs. And so we, you know, I'd go into Surrey Hills and all find a warehouse and say, right, this is for a gig. How do I get this space? And so I was, I was hustling a lot, yeah. and I was better at the hustle than the than the um, than the musicianship of it, I suppose. So, so I was just doing a fanzine, trying to make it go for it. I started writing for Waves regularly and sort of was managed, managed to sort of combine my love of surfing and my love of music. Um, I was writing for all sorts of magazines that don't exist anymore. Um, and then I then it's come to this point where I was in my sort of mid-20s and, I, you know, I was a celebrated fanzine writer for 100 people in Sydney or Australia or something like that. And then, then when Channel V was starting up as Red, um, someone I'd known through fans in writing, Julie Bennett, she said, look, they're looking for a writer, you should ring them. And it was set up by a bunch of XABC people and they were trying to make like Triple J of pictures was how it was mm. set up at the time. Um, early days of subscription television, tiny audience, we didn't have all the labels on contract. But, um, you know, like any startup, there's a huge, there's an enormous spirit uh, in that sort of startup, and you know, we went through it. But I was a writer. I was writing for for five or six hosts at the time. One of them was Leah Purcell, the actress who um, I think the last thing I saw her in was Redfern. Now uh, we there was Jabba. There was um, in the early days there was people like Nathan Harvey, a couple of, you know, some models, different sort of people. And I was just writing for them, but sort of you know, still doing my other stuff and still thinking I want to be this you know celebrated freelance music writer, like all my idols in, in, in books, but took that path into TV. It was great. And I remember I turned, it had been Channel V for a little while. Yeah. It had been Channel V, I think, for maybe two years. Probably, yeah. I yeah, sh- about two years. Yeah, I showed up and I got there in April 99 mm. and we were in this long building. It's now apartments. It was this incredible place to work. It was this long building, uh, Wharf 8 at 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 uh, Piermont uh, next to the museum. And there was, you know, I, I read a lot about, and I've got mates who are in, in San Francisco, and I've got mates who are in the startup scene now. And only just talking to you now do I understand what it was. We were just in that energy and just coming to work every day, being in the energy of we're just making something amazing. Mm. We are capturing this energy that's happening in this room because we're just so excited. We all mm. love music and we yeah. all get to talk about it. We all get to make television. Let's go make it. And the response to that was like, yes, we want to watch this. Mm. And we were just so lucky to give, be given the budget mm. and the airtime and have people in charge, like, the, like mm. you said, the Barry Chapman, the man that took Triple mm. J National, went, he always tells the story, I walked into the studio and I says, see that button that says on air? Push it. We can't do that. Push it. And they did and that's it. We went live. Yeah, and for me it was one day I'd been um, – just been writing and I spent two years just learning the craft, you know, and I don't think people 
would do that anymore, but I spent two years and then suddenly they said, well, why don't you um, start producing a show? And like, I was never trained. And then I sort of started producing a show and you'd fly by the city vans and you'd, the very early DV cameras, the, the Sony uh, PD-1000, very early model, you know, you're shooting without any training and you're sort of learning as you go and it's a small audience. And then one day they said, we want you to do a live show. And I think, you know, the, the master plan was, you know, you don't want to have to unlearn anything. It's more yeah. like, let's just learn this model. There's no, there's no ratings or commercial pressure. It was an unprecedented time of making uh, TV content. It's like mm. kids sort of doing their own sort of online channels now. Exactly. But there was, there was that absolute passion. But I think out of that passion was, you know, at, at first we were really, you know, quite close-minded, I think, in hindsight. But then we started playing hip-hop. Then we played soul and R&B and all these sorts of things. And it was... You know, we're talking late 90s, but there's this huge reaction in some, from some circles about, you're playing too much black music, what, this, what the strains don't like this stuff. And, you know, you're talking about, you know, something that's really quite shocking now to think about how, how new and fresh and sort of confronting all that R&B was. Yeah. You know? But um, I'm just trying to think of some of the early stuff. But even, you know, and I really grew to appreciate it because as a Marvin Gaye fan, I'd say, oh, this, I get it. I get where this is coming from. Yeah. A lot of the hip-hop stuff, you know, and I, I you know, I, I think that, it was. We all sort of expanded and grew, and and uh, you know, Australia's a really different place than what it was back then. It is. Really it is only, we're only talking fourteen years ago, but yeah, yeah. Ab- absolutely was. And in your generous, generous, generous self, you you gave me as my executive producer. Um, you gave me space to replicate the time you took to learn how to do it. <laughs> like I got there and I, it was amazing because I'd done a lot of radio. Mm. Uh, I'd done five years of radio and I turn up and I'm doing three hours of live TV five days a week. And just to have that space to just be bad mm. and really blow really big interviews. And but I think I actually think you were really you, – you'd come from like – the radio training is unbelievable, you know, and, and to this day there was a point where you'd be doing a show and I'd always, I always knew you could bring it back in. You know, with live TV, you got to, you kind of, <laughs> I mean, you're supposed to come in on time, but our boss at the time said, look, it's only, you're only going to add a music video, so if it's interesting, keep going, was kind yeah, right. of the mantra. But I always thought, you know, are we making Andrew unlearn this amazing stuff? Because a lot of our, the rest of us were rank amateurs and so there was this kind of meeting of the minds. But I think out of it, what no one had done was the amount of time you'd be on air. Yeah. The unpredictability of it all and the fact that we were manufacturing chaotic moments and I think you know when we did a we did a show together Rings of Fire during the 2000 Olympics it was the great it was the mm. one of the greatest things I've ever done and so we had Cram from Spiderbait yeah. and we had a show and we we, we got really good guests this is basically like it, it was Sydney 2000 let me just paint the picture it was Without a word of a lie, it was like New Year's Eve every single night mm. for about three weeks. Mm, it was the it best time ever in Sydney. Astonishing. No one drove the cars. Everyone took time off. It was warm spring weather. Um, the Olympics were just incredible, incredibly apart to be a part of. The Olympics had also signed this colossal deal with NBC, so we couldn't use any footage. We couldn't mm. use the name. We couldn't even say the name word Olympics. Um, we could call it the Games. Mm. Um, and... There was a really successful television show on the Seven Network uh, by two landmark um, landmark uh, broadcasters called Roy and HG, uh, who basically got all the top tier, mm. and they would we loved that show like anything. And then the idea was like, well, let's do a games, let's do a games show. And so I remember we had a big Paralympian Paralympian focus, yeah, which was really exciting. Mm. And we just went live every night with the drummer from a band called Spiderbait, who had a yeah. big hit called Black Betty. And he's a sports nut. Sports nut, who would sit there shooting boxing. He had a Super 8 camera, <laughs> and he would sit there shooting with a grrr, 
camera in, in the wrestling and stuff like that. And we just went live and we, uh, Tina Arena, we challenged to a darts competition. The night Kathy Freeman won the 400 Yothi Undi on the show. So we went up to the pub and watched yeah. the show with Yothi Undi, which was an amazing moment in my life because, you know, we're all tearing up. It was the most, I you know, it's such a land, it's the relief of her winning. I think there, but there were other athletes. So as the athletes finished their events, they'd come in and like we didn't, the more fringe the sport, table tennis, anything we were into it and i remember then there was jai tarima the the long jumper who came and hung out with us the night before he won silver medal he's just sitting across the road with us you know we're just you know having a drink and thinking well thanks for coming and then the next day he's won a silver medal and and that was what it was people would come in we got great music talent um i think we had um heather smalls from m people came in one night as well because she was in town before muse played muse played it was a, a, sort of a, a magical moment. And I think to what we we're previously saying is they said, well, the Olympics is coming on. We think you should do a live show every night. And we're going, well, isn't the Olympics on? Everyone will be watching it. But in, in hindsight, I remember looking at ratings thinking, wow, we're, a lot of people are watching this. There's a lot of people, you know. Yeah. Um, and Francis Leach, Leach uh, also um, co-hosted. And he, he does, um, you know, he's an ex-Triple J sportscaster yeah. in Melbourne now. Yeah. But I just remember it was an amazing time to be in Sydney and thinking, well, we're really going to struggle, but it worked. And every day we'd have a parlor game. I remember going to the to one of the sports stores and buying, you know, some sort of parlor game so we could have, you know, I think with Tina Arena, where she had a beer in one hand and a dart in the other, and we had darts with her. And, you know, I think with, with, where you join these jobs and you're kind of precious about music, over time you just think if a person's a great talent, if they're going to give generously with their time, then that's a great show. And, and all, music taste goes out the window when you're yeah. in the environment. It's like, well, look at Tina Arena. She's an Aussie icon and she's having a game of darts with a beer yeah, it was on so TV good. swearing it up was the amazing. Trooper. It was amazing. <laughs> but we were just there. We were able to make television at this really unique part of Australian culture and Australia time. Internet speeds were just popping it up. We were the first people to ever do live SMS polling in Australia. We were doing live to air Mm. SMS messages across the screen. You were trying to do MMSs. I remember for months you'd say, send me an MMS. This is how you do it. You'd hold the, you know, yeah, the yeah. phone up and you'd, you'd see one. We'd go, we yes. were the first people to put live <laughs> chat to line. We were yeah. the first people to really do integrative, integra- mm. in, interactive internet and television at the same time. And only because I was able to say to, to Bernie Zelvis, the great mm. Australian director, can you put this to line? Yeah, sure. Tell me mm. when. Now. Mm. There you go, look, blah, 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 in the chat room, blah, 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 blah. And it was just nuts, yeah. just nuts. There's no way you could do that now. Um, so what would be your, there's going to be two parts to this question, what would be your proudest Channel V moment then? Mm. Um, I think the proudest moment would, would have been where it would be a Foo Fighters show. And we did a lot of shows with the Foo Fighters and they showed enormous trust. But probably the, the first one we did outdoors at Fox Studios where we had, I don't know, I don't know thousands of, of kids I'm going to say up. 10, easily yeah. 10,000 people. And um, I saw that Foo Fighters documentary recently and it, I never, at the time I thought they were the biggest thing on earth, but I, you know, it was a, sort of the trajectory of their career where they ended up playing Wembley or O2 or something mm. like that to massive crowds. And in, in that timeline we were probably about, you know, 13% into their careers, but they turned up and, and I remember, you know, the Everlong, that Foo Fighters song, which is a magic, magic song, you know, and I've utmost respect for them and their management group and they were really, really giving and it was a beautiful night and, and everything sort of turned out and there's that moment where you really realise, wow, we've really got something here. We've gone from being this tiny cable channel to, with a few promos, we've got 10,000 people hanging off trees wanting to see this band and, and um, it just like a magical night where things really work. You know, in live TV, you get really hard on yourself and nothing, you know, the smallest things can make you feel like, well, I just, tonight wasn't quite the night. And, you know, we look back on a TV career and maybe you look at 10 shows where everything went right. doesn't mean the other shows weren't enjoyable or fun, but 
I remember that show was just amazing. And I think you, Dave Grohl's probably the, the special person to do it he's with as well. He's mm. without a doubt. He's the greatest. Yeah. So and I couldn't agree with you more. I was there that night. It was one mm. of the greatest, greatest things ever. And I fell in love with him when we did them at uh, the Wharf. Yeah. When we, we were in the tiny little studio with 20 fans. It was actually, I think it was like seven or 12. So I said, you know, and I was in a, in a studio which was six by five metres. And I had said to the management over and over again, this is how big it is. This is how big it is. You know, I kept saying it, and, and I think that Taylor had just joined the band as drummer, yeah. maybe. Yeah. He was, was on just, a riser. And, and they just had Shiflet. They just had these two new members yeah. join. It was amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. It was, At the time, I thought that was the biggest thing on earth, and we're doing it in this tiny studio. He was a drummer from Nirvana. Mm. It was amazing. It was amazing. So having said that, what was the, what was the toughest Channel V moment for you? Um, the toughest moments would always have been when you're doing a public show once again, when things just turn ugly. There was a show we did in... Um, the Gold Coast might have been two, and there's one in Scarborough that we had to shut down. So yeah. let me just p- paint this. Channel yeah. V, in their infinite bravery, would be like, let's get a staging truck that folds out. Let's get a band truck. Uh, let's get a, a bus full of crew. Let's get a satellite truck. Well, let's just turn up to a field, mm-hmm. turn it all on, and yeah. go live for two hours. Mm-hmm. Let's see what happens. And we did that every day, six days a week. For sixty days in a row, yeah, seventy like two, days, three months, forever. Mm-hmm. We were on tour forever, and those, some of those shows were some of the most incredible things that mm-hmm. I've ever, ever, ever done. With three PD one fifties plugged yeah. in the back of a satellite dish, mm-hmm. going raw live across yeah. the country. You, no way anyone would ever do that now. No. Forget about it. No. And we got to do that kind of stuff. But I definitely remember the shows you're talking about. That mm-hmm. just, I think it was more that um, you know. I think by all those shows we shut down early, so we and we had to fake it. You know, you don't want to overexcite people, but you, you know it's getting ugly. Mm-hmm. And really, what you're doing is inherit inheriting the area's problems. You know, you sort of see these groups of people who just don't get along. You know, unfortunately in Australia, you always had the sort of the, the Aboriginal community who always felt like they were on the outer of all these towns you'd visit and it felt like they're sort of there and then you have other elements and, and things would probably alcohol, drugs, everything like that. But for some reason, you know, those were the shows where you really just worried about, you don't want people to come and have a bad time. Mm. at a show you know I think Magic Dirt was playing at one show I forget Scarborough's Grinspoon um, and uh, it was scary and I think it was scary because those shows came after we'd been in Los Angeles and in another scary incident where we'd been at a show that ended badly so I think you know being scarred from that and being mindful of the health and safety of just kids you know there are kids who are coming for a good time because they love Channel V but then there are community problems which are playing themselves out Right in front yeah, of you. Yeah, yeah. Before, before we get out of Channel V, we should probably talk about that. You and I went on a – we used to go on uh, work trips that were called junkets where we would take a cameraman, a sound guy, you and me, and we would go on these big trips funded by a record mm. company to go and interview their biggest artists and, mm. and be exposed to really interesting things that are happening overseas and bring that back. Mm. Uh, and one of those things we saw was a um, – a system of a down show, and I drive past this all oh, the time you? in Hollywood. What's the neighbourhood like now? It's as sus as you could ever imagine. Um, it was this put on by a station there, a radio station over there, and it was terribly, terribly well put together, mm. terribly put together. And uh, system of a down, we're about to release their new album. Um, they have a very heavy, as all LA metal does, very heavy Hispanic, mm. heavy duty neck tattoo. Like not yeah. now fashionable neck tattoo. I'm talking mm. like 2001. Scorpion. Don't mess with <laughs> me neck tattoo vibe. And someone said, this show has to stop. And we were standing in a little media area behind no mojo barriers. We were like little bicycle rack barricades. Mm. And slowly we saw one by one, every media person get escorted out. Mm. And... 
I always describe it as like, because I worked in nightclubs for a long time as a roadie mm. and I remember feeling the energy of the crowd turn mm. and going, oh man, we're in trouble. Mm. We're in big yeah, trouble. Yeah, I remember that. And it's, you could feel it, you'd feel it building and building like, like the air before a lightning strike. You could mm. feel the energy in the room. I remember just, and then it kicked off mm. and it was weird. Yeah, people pull speakers down. I think they were old fashioned stacks, right? Yeah. And knocking them down and. We were in a riot. Yeah. And there was, there was a system of down security. Like their, their crew were trying to fight these, these kids off. Like they had, their crew had unscrewed the mic, stands. mic stands and mm. using them as weapons yeah. to beat people back off the stage to protect the backline gear. Mm. Our cameraman got injured. Yep. Uh, you, what, you dived in. I, well, he's you know back in the day, you're looking at a digital beta cam camera. I mean, you shouldn't think of it like this, but you know it's a two hundred thousand dollar camera. It so really he's was. he's basically kids don't want to be filmed, you know. So he's filming. They start trying to grab his camera, and he's not going to let it go. So they're attacking him, and then I sort of dive in, and I remember just getting king hit. But you know, because you got so much adrenaline, you just you just sort of you know it bounces off but then I remember we had to climb under it you know we said we got to get out of here we just ran under a fence and it was just yeah on. I found I found some cyclone found some chain link fence that led into mm. Hollywood High which is, is behind that what it was? Yeah, yeah yeah and I pulled this chain link fence out of the ground mm. and I was like under here and we yeah. scooted into this a car park or something it was a high school we but there were, as we were climbing through there were kids pushing us like there were kids almost like are they going to attack us or not? So we wouldn't, but then I remember we got to the back of it and then we saw the LAPD riot squad marching down and also knowing that you can't, if they had seen us, they would have hit us as well. Like there was just, yeah, there was and nowhere then, to go and we ran and f- there's a taxi driving down the street. And I yeah. live in Los Angeles now. Yeah. There are three cabs in LA. <laughs> it's not like any other city in the world. There are three taxis. And I'll never forget, there was loading up the rubber bullets. The men were on horseback. Yeah. The riot police were there and this cab just drove through and he was yeah. free. And I just put her hand up. And, and he we, drove us to the hotel and then went to see the Sinai. And I remember, like, I think we're all in shock because it was, you know, it's a pretty terrifying situation for people who aren't used to that sort of situation. Yeah. And you can understand the trauma that people live through who go, who see or live in some of those neighbourhoods would see all the time. But, you know, I remember Michael was really hurt. You know, I think he, he had significant bruising. And uh, I think out of it, though, you know, because then we went to New York three days later and it was September 11 or four days later. Yeah. I think we're all kind of in a different way really traumatised from that event. You know, we're, we're people covering music, um, yeah. but then we're, I think we're, we're all in our own way quite traumatised going into September 11, which was, you know, in a way just so momentous, but I think we were just scarred going into it. But the other part about it, the weirdness of the cab, I remember we, we put, my, Michael was in hospital or he was recovering, and then we walked down the street and ran to Shehad, who we'd worked with a lot at the time. They might have been called Pacifier in the, in the US. And they said, they hey, were still Shehad because it was pre-September 11. They were still Shehad. That's right. And we just went and had a drink with them, and I was thinking, this, it was the strangest, you know, trip ever. It was because mm. in between nearly dying in a riot and being in New York on September 11, we saw a Tenacious D show. That's right. You in and I. New York. Yeah. Foo Fighters management hooked us up. And we went and saw a Tenacious D show and it was the greatest thing I'd seen. It was. And the Strokes were sitting behind us. And we didn't know really. I think they had one song. I was like, those are those guys that came to our studio <laughs> that time. Yeah, they laugh, and it was amazing. And then, like two days later, well, a day later in Washington D.C., Maxwell. That's um, right. We sat in Washington for two days. For two days, and then we went to the White House and saw John Howard. You know, this is September ten. On September ten, he yeah. was there. Yeah, we and he waved. We waved at John Howard leaving the White House, and then it gives me chills every time I talk about this. We were like, "Well, they've called the Maxwell interview off. Mm. We've got flights out of Dallas Airport." Back to New York tomorrow, mm. or we can take the train tonight and have mm. another night in New York. Mm. Let's take the train tonight. Yeah. We flew and we took the train back to New York. Mm. And then the next morning, I heard what I thought 
was a garbage truck going by. Mm. I was like, oh, oh it was like 8.35. Oh, that's interesting. Got up, had a pee. And I was taping a lot of American television at the time. Mm. So I was just basically, I was just recording, just just seeing what American television was. I was on VHS machines and I sort of put it in the thing. I turned the TV on and I saw this, that had a still shot, a locked off shot of the hole in the first tower. I remember waking up going, dude, you should, we should probably look at this. And you looked, and, and as you got up, the second plane hit. Yeah, because I think for about a minute, we thought, oh, there's a light plane crash in a building. How bizarre. I think I remember, I remember feeling like, and then the second plane hit, and then you looked out the window. I could see you it. You could see it. Mm. I'm like, this is not good. Yeah. I think I then proceeded to lose my mind. I think we all, like I said, I think we all lost our mind in different ways, and that's like an intense situation. I, I remember being really traumatized from the LA experience, and really, uh, it, it just, you know, it affected us in different ways. And I, my reaction is always, I don't want to, I have to go and face this. You know, yeah. that's my reaction. I've got to be, I, don't, I can't be indoors. I'm freaking out. I want to be indoors. I want to be walking the streets. I want to know what's happening. Yeah. You know, and we all sort of had that different reaction, but um, it's, it was unbelievable on top of everything that we'd been through. Because like, I think we actually, you guys had, we all had tickets out anyway on September 11, even though we, you know. We were going to fly that day. We were supposed yeah. to fly that day. And here's the other thing. An interview Incubus, wasn't it? We Down at Canal Incubus, Avenue. We were going to interview Incubus that day. But I think you told me is that maybe was that the plane we were supposed to be on i always tried to work that out you know which plane were we supposed to be on because I, I was i was all i was all ptsd'd out so i mm. threw all that shit away because i didn't want to be reminded of it but i think there was also i mean at the time you know we're staying in in two different hotels you and i were in a hotel and then about well, 50 meters up the road the other two guys are in and then as it shut down we started to see it felt like america immediately went on to war footing really really fast and i remember there were um agents in everywhere. You remember then, we took yeah. that we walked into the W Hotel where mm. our sound man and our cameraman were staying and we got into the lift and this is a time before Blackberries. Yeah. There's a time before anyone had seen them. Maybe earliest mm. Blackberries were just yeah. starting to come out in two thousand one. We got into the lift and there was a man, very smart, in his polo shirt, tucked into his, his chinos. He was holding a small little carry-on bag and on his waist was a, a spare clip for a an automatic mm. uh, handgun. Mm. And something that was probably about five years ahead of the latest BlackBerry that we'd ever seen. Mm. And we were like, holy shit, we're in a lift mm. with a special agent. Mm. This is a hotel. In a hotel. And I think we both I said, well, good luck today. And yeah. said, thank you. Mm. so full on. And I just remember there, were, um, there was no plan. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Planes overhead for a week, and I remember, but I remember walking... Because we walked and walked for day, you know, because we had nothing to do. And I remember seeing kind of you'd, you'd peer through the crack of a building, there'd be military 
as if people were just waiting. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, at the time, you know, it did feel like the America was going to war. You know, and that's I remember, I'll never forget it. I tell everyone that asks about that day. We were sitting there and it was like right after the second, after the second tower had fallen, mm. we were back in, you and me were back in our hotel room and they'd started rolling a loop footage of Al-Qaeda training camps. Mm. And he said, it was almost as if, because they were putting all different callers to air, yeah. they were just taking calls from anywhere and it was this really overbearing feeling that someone went and stood in the back of the newsroom and went, okay, here's what it is. And they started playing this looping tape mm. and you went, I'll never forget it. You said, demonizing the Arab. Mm. Yeah, it was. You wouldn't want to be in an Arab in New York at that point in time. And day, yeah. New York being the most liberal, you know, place to be in the yeah, US. Yeah. But, you know, you, you get through those things. And I, and I, but I think, you know, you learn a lot about how you, how you react to those situations. And yeah. you know, I always think to the people who live that life every day, you know, the people who live in Syria, who live in all these different yeah, places yeah. And, and, you know, I, how it traumatizes you. Cause I, like I said, we're all, all traumatized going into it. And, and I, you know, I don't think any of us are ever the same again. I think I came back to Australia. I remember I lost all fear and I was, was quite numb, just, you know, doing kind of reckless, you know, just, I remember going out to see shows and just walking through dodgy parts of Sydney and, right. you know, I mean, it, it did affect us all for a long time. Yeah, I, shut really down, I shut yeah. down completely. Mm. I couldn't. I couldn't watch the news. I couldn't. I couldn't read a news. I couldn't see a newspaper. I couldn't. Mm. If I was in a cab and a news bulletin started, I'd ask him to change the station. Mm. It, I was yeah. really weirded out by it. And we all coughed up black stuff for weeks. Yeah, and I, I wonder about that now because there's a lot oh, of people so who I, yeah. get picked up and and a lot of sort of health checks going on. Yeah, yeah. But you know, you know, you know, that was that junket. We did others where not, you know nothing went wrong and. Yeah. We want to talk to Ozzy Osbourne. Yeah, exactly. Play golf with Incubus and all kinds of other Mm. wacky stuff. Um, I'm all flustered talking about that now. I haven't talked about that with anyone for a long time. It's full on. I remember because what after that, I remember we that was 2001, and then 2001 was also the big day when the girl died, Jessica. It was that. It was that year. So I remember um, when that happened. You know, I remember our boss said, "You got to make something of this," and so we had amazing riot footage. We had 17 cameras. On. Yeah, and then we had right footage from LA, and, and and then we had the big data footage, and we had cameras from every angle. So I remember we shot it, and, and I remember, you know, there's intense pressure not to release any of that footage at the time from, from you know, I think it was Limp Biscuit management and all that sort of thing. So, But I remember going into the edit suite and then having to so I should, look at I should that, just, for know, people that don't understand, yeah. uh, it was a big day out, which is like a, a kind of a, a touring Lollapalooza-style multi-stage festival. It's massive, 50,000, 60,000 people go to the show every And it travels, like I think, 10 dates or nine dates it does from Auckland and New Zealand all the way across Australia to Perth. And in 2001... Uh, a 15-year-old girl by the name of Jessica Michalik uh, died during Limp Biscuit's set. And it was awful. We talked about the tension rising. Yeah, because you and I were at an interview booth above the back of the stadium. You could feel it all mm, day. Yeah. All, it was 42 degrees. You could feel it rising all day, all day, all day, all day, all day. So I was having to put a, a special together around kind of crowd safety in the end it became about that and sitting in an edit suite reliving the Los Angeles stuff and just getting, you know, the chills and then mm. looking through 17, ca- you know, it was I think it was like, you know, it's like 12 cameras and you sync them up. So you're sitting there looking at this bank of cameras and seeing things in real time and starting to hear things off camera and... You know, it was kind of this traumatic way to continue this this intense year, which yeah, it was. Yeah. And, and I think it was, um, 
it was a really, really intense, sad day, you know, and, yeah. and I think that's the point. It comes back to it when you do shows or anything in the public domain, even when I do them now with kids, it's, it's, it's what keeps you up at night, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, which that, we'll, we should get yeah. out of this because the yeah. Channel V stuff is very heavy, but there was a change in management at Channel V, and uh, I'd always loved to come to work at Channel V because uh, I, I loved to do the long hours and I loved to work and I loved to do it because I, I, I wanted to make a good TV for you and that's okay mm. as a business model for to be that's your job to be the inspiring executive mm. producer who gives you permission creates the space for with which into you can do what it is that you do well and then you call me one day and said I'm leaving Mm. Um, and you just had a kid. You mm. just had your first yeah, my, daughter. No, I had my second. You had your kid, second actually. kid. Yeah. So you had your my second kid was two weeks old. Your daughter is what? Two? She was two. Yeah. And your your son is two weeks old. And mm. you're like, I'm leaving. Mm. And I'm like, Why is he going to go? He's going to go to Channel Nine. He's going to go to Channel Seven. <laughs> He's going to go to Australian Network. He said, I'm going to go to India. I'm going to launch Nickelodeon <laughs> in Mumbai. Mm. What informed that? How did that happen? And what was that decision like I, I, to, to make as a, as a new dad, as a dad? Yeah. You know, everyone's a dad for the first time once. Mm. What was what was behind that? I've been at Channel V for 10 years. And I think, you know, we, we've talked about just the amazing freedom. There's was, there was even periods where there was no ratings and no ad sales. If you work in television you, and you take those off the table for a number of years, you know, you sort of get to this point with just this unbelievable freedom. And we'd, we'd made an enormous amount of stuff. But I remember there was a few things happening. We'd done a project called Band in the Bubble, which was an amazing experience. We built a, a custom-built studio in Australia's biggest corner and uh, locked the band and a presenter in, in, a, in this booth and made television. It was very early days of reality, I suppose. Yeah. And, and sort of filmed it for 24 hours. But uh, 20, 24 hours for two days, two weeks running. Um, and, you know, that wasn't very good. Uh, and the health of just some of some of the people in the bubble, and I and I you know I found it really traumatic once again, feeling like what's my impact on people's yeah. lives and health. Um, at the same time, I think Idol had started up, and you and, and James had, had moved to Australian Idol, and you were sort of doing both. Um, and so I, you know, there's definitely that sense of there's change in the air, and people you've got to keep moving, you've got to keep yeah. moving, and I felt like I'd probably been there a little bit long. And with the change of management, they just came with new ideas. And there was a point where you try and resist it. But there's also a point of saying, hang on, you know, change has to happen in any organisation. Um, and I think the places, they wanted to take the business more into probably, in hindsight, an MTV direction, a lot more sort of local reality, mm. um, more but more sort of prank-based prank long-form sort of stuff. Okay. And, and, you know, that sense the music industry is cl- crashing, uh, Everything was just changing, and I felt like, well, I tried to resist, but I thought, well, why, why resist? Why, why? It's not fair to stand in the way of this sort of change. And I think I like myself a whole lot less for resisting and also for thinking, well, actually, I can see this great movement. I could see you and James having amazing opportunities and success on, on TV. Others who'd been that through that along that journey with us weren't faring as well. And so I think, you know, just sitting there dreaming. I read a book called Shantaram, which is about, uh, you know, which I thought it was actually non-fiction at the time. It's a fictitious story about an Australian bank robber who lives and hides out in Mumbai. I read that and thought, wow, this is really cool. Send a letter to someone, you know, so one thing puts out, you put one thing out in the ether, another thing out to someone else who I'd met and she worked at Nickelodeon Australia and then she got in contact and said, would you, I think my son had just come out of hospital, my wife, two days old, would you move to Mumbai to work for Nickelodeon? And I thought at the time, I probably should have thought it through more, but I said, no, this is, this is right. This is the universe telling me that the change is afoot. And so I kind of said yes on the spot. And it was a, it's huge, really hard to leave a job you've been at for a long time. And we built this amazing thing, but you know, it was the right time. So I didn't really think much about it. And maybe that was just, 
maybe that was the smart thing to do, not to think it through too much. Um, I hadn't worked in kids' TV, but I had kids, so I was sort of starting to see that world. I felt like I'd absolutely exhausted that that path that we'd been on with music. I'd opened every door possible and had, you know, I'd done my 10,000 hours. You know, we'd, we'd made so much television. We are making 25 hours of live TV a week, and then I was responsible for another 10 hours of pre-recorded TV. It was a massive volume. So it was just time, and, you know, and I think in hindsight it was, you know, I almost wished I'd left earlier because it's, it, you know, you want to leave one of the parties at its peak, you know mm. what I mean? And let the new thing come in, let the new thing change, let new people change in their ideas. You know, I'm, I'm, become a, I'm a great believer in change and, and sort of uh, facilitating change. So I left, I left, I made it up, I went and, you know, I remember I landed in Mumbai for a look-see and I remember just like thinking, if you've ever been to India or Mumbai, it's, um, it's just intense, it's the maximum city, you know, you, you life and death, you know, it's played out in front of you, you know, the slums, the colour. And I remember just lying in my bed in my hotel and just like having this panic attack thing, I'm going to move my family here, can I do this? This is just like intense, you know, it's these intense moments that anyone who goes through change really has, you know, it's almost, it's almost validation that this is the important thing. So I moved my family and I remember getting off the plane in Mumbai and there's everyone hanging off us trying to get money because we're pushing to a, to a car and I'm doing my first conference call and they're all talking about stuff and, but I'm just freaked out about India and we drive through the biggest, one of the biggest slums in Southeast Asia and you land in India and that first two weeks is just unbelievably intense but you know, I, you know, I'm a real believer in, in sort of that authentic life, that life where you really got to put it out there and just soak it up and, and for better or for worse, you, you, you feel absolutely alive, your senses are tingling, you're hearing, seeing everything, everything's more colourful and you're hearing all the sounds. It's exhausting. It's, it's, pad- it's paddling into the big wave, man. It's, it is. It's, 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 it is. it's not letting the set wave pass, it's yeah. paddling into it. And sometimes it's just instinct, not thinking too much. And I, and I think if I really weighed it up and pros and cons, it, it wouldn't have made as much sense as it did that when we landed and thankfully, you know, amazing wife who'd grown up in Manila and she, she loved and embraced crazy cities. But, you know, it... it was a really important full stop on one life and, and the beginning of a new one. And what was it like leaving the just the chaos, the kind of you can do anything as mm. long as we don't see any penises or vaginas <laughs> go, Yeah, and that's Channel Z, mm. to such a strict brand ethos of yeah. Nickelodeon? What was yeah. that like? Um, took a long time. You know, I think you, as you sort of, you're given a rule book, a brand book, which I love to get. You know, you get the brand book. I've seen it, actually, because my ex-girlfriend worked for Nickelodeon. Yeah, the I, orange book. Yeah, I've seen it. Mm. So you, you got this, um, you got these brand guidelines and, and you know, you, you sort of worry a bit about, you, you sort of, it's like when you learn the rules, you got to learn the rules before you can break the rules. Um, but what they really wanted to do was, was, um, was they'd been there for a while, but really unsuccessfully. They wanted to relaunch and they brought in, you know, Indian people are just the smartest, sharpest people, you know, that you can ever meet. You know, in office they're all speaking four languages and moving it around and their English is so perfect, turn-of-the-century English-English and, you know. Um, so the thing about India, you've got to be worried more about being too foreign. Um, there are sensitivities in, in, cult, in the culture around American influences, you have to be really careful about, you know, just offending different interest groups and stuff like that. We made live shows. We made, you know, we made uh, live shows. We did tons of shoots. And I just went, I just launched myself in there and trusted my instincts and just listened to people. I remember mm. like early in your time there, you did one, you did two things that really blew me away. You sent me a video that you'd taken out the window of a cab during, oh, it was a festival of light? What is yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Was, and it just um, went on and on and mm. on of just people just partying on the side of the street. Yeah. And then you sent me one other email that just said, 
the future is Asia. You said, <laughs> no, you, you, said America, you said America will become, it'll just be like this quaint kind of European thing. Mm. And uh, you're just talking about the, just the sheer, v- just colossal nature of the Indian mm. film industry. It's mm. going, Hollywood's not even the yeah. tense of this. I think, unfortunately, India seems to have stalled. At the time, it was like unbelievable optimism. And optimism in many countries is when you're going to do better than your parents. You know, in yeah. some ways, we may be the last generation who can do slightly better than our parents. Um, and India, you had that sense. I think really the, the burden of that infrastructure that you need to really move a nation. India is a, a rich country with poor people. You know, that's, there's, and that's what I got a sense of. There's amazing fruit and vegetables. There's food everywhere, but not everyone can afford that food. Um, and in India, I saw so many, so much would be, I'd be filming, I'd walk down the street and I'd be the only foreign person. There'd be people dancing in the streets and pushing giant Ganesha gods out into the ocean in front of my house. I went to a friend's printing. I, you know, he, I t- said, I want to take photos. And he said, come to my printing press and you go out to this suburb and you're just taking shots of manual typesetting and all that sort of thing. I saw, um, I walked home through major floods. I, there was a, you know, talking about September 11, there was a massive terrorist attack where they'd bombed, I think it was five or six trains, they always hit the front carriage because that's where the Gujaratis were and they were the ones, they'd been a pogrom against Muslims in, in, in the state of Gujarat, in Ahmedabad. So, you know, I had to walk across the train lines of just devastation. I'd seen a guy murdered, you know, in, in, a, in a gang hit in, in a slum when I was looking for some, my wife was looking for some exotic daybed that she knew some guy was going to restore. But then I just saw joy and celebration and, and India is, is life playing out in front of your eyes. It's, it's, it's authentic. It's, you know, it's really real. A long way from Narrabin. A long way from Narrabin. I'd sit in a taxi and just see these things and I'd just be texting people going, and then I'd just give up and say, I can't even describe what I'm seeing. Cows and millions of people and, and happiness and sadness. And, you know, it, there, were, there were definitely times when I thought I was going to die. You know, there were definitely times when I thought, you know, life can't get any better. Yeah. Sitting in my room, and I live near City of Anayak, one of the biggest Hindu temples in, in Mumbai, and, and Ravi Shankar and his daughter are playing a, a, a spiritual concert that goes for six hours on sitar. And I think if I get it right, the whole concert builds up to one note, which you sustain and then everyone just gets euphoric and goes, it's, it's like house music, right? Wow. You build up, build up, build up, and then you, you hit that note and everyone's like, yeah. And then, <laughs> and then I'm sitting there writing at night and I can hear weddings and I can hear spiritual music from the temple and I can hear Ravi Shankar and, you know, it, it's, it's undescribable. It's, just, it's intense, you know. So I really, I really, really enjoyed that what time. Kind of t- what kind of kids' TV did you make with all this informing you? It was, it was we, we, we made some kind of... Um, Variety shows we made, um, we commissioned a lot. We, we'd buy footage and then just get Hindu comics to revoice it. We bought a lot of Japanese animation, which for some reason really, really worked, which is everything. It was, it was really brave. You know, a lot of the things where you just do acquisitions of just like, no, every other Nickelodeon in the world would go, what is that? <laughs> Didn't you tell me that you used to go like right up to the border areas near Kashmir and like yeah. source animators from up there? No, I went up to Ahmedabad and I was near the Pakistani border oh, that's right. to our animation and I just flew up and it was this amazing creative university. And I remember texting saying, I'm near the Pakistani border, how's the big day out going? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> that's but, right. Uh, you know, you just do those journeys and I just think you become more comfortable and, and you, you become comfortable in your skin and... Um, 
it's nice to be an outsider sometimes. You know, yeah, right. I think I enjoyed being an outsider. And was that is was it when you were working there that you mm-hmm. did the uh, the Ramadan Kids Show in Indonesia? Yeah, we so no from there I went to I got Nickelodeon wanted me to go to Jakarta to make a show for Ramadan, the Islamic holy month, and they we'd never done anything. It was it was a, it was a, it was a religious pretext, obviously, to the show. So we had Nickelodeon characters. We had tradition. It's the largest Muslim nation in the world. It is. It's, it doesn't occur to them as religious pretext. It's just like mm-hmm. well, this is what all of us do. So let's the make a sh- month. Yeah, let's yeah. make a show about it. Yeah. So it was a live show every day for 30 days, um, and we would have some Nickelodeons. We would have art and craft. We would have traditional um, Javanese puppets. And did you get Cram from Spider about to come and co-host it? <laughs> I wish. I thought many times. And, and the one thing I learned out of that is I went in there as a, you know, an Aussie. You know, I didn't know much about Islam, and, and people were incredibly patient and kind. In, in explaining. I, I learned about Islam and I didn't have to. They didn't judge me because I wasn't. I got asked a lot of Pauline Hanson questions, which is who was a famous right-wing Australian politician at the time. And I would, out of respect, I would never eat or drink in front of them because they couldn't do that. But at the end of the day, if you ever make TV when everyone's in there together and it's intense and then, then you hear that, that last prayer and then we all sat down just ate at this giant table together and my wife and kids would come and meet me and we'd, and it was, uh, I love Jakarta. I love, you know, I, I think Australia not embracing our, our neighbours and particularly Indonesia is, you know, it's, it's just, there's just so much opportunity. There's so much, um, you know, there's just, just such a wealth of, of, of knowledge and communion between our, our countries. That's we are all Indonesians if we really want to go back far enough, right? The land bridge, yeah. You know, and, and how close Indonesia is. So I really love that time, and um, I learn a lot. And once again, these things are humbling. I think that's the key thing. Is once you once there's a point at Channel V where I thought like I've just done it. I need to yeah. keep doing things. I need to be a bit scared. I need butterflies. And so you, were, yeah. I just it just blows my mind. You're making this live TV show, a long way from Rings of Fire, in another language, in another <laughs> yeah. language. While everyone's hungry because they haven't eaten since the mm. first prayer in the morning, it's like I think they eat at four in the morning yeah. or something. Yeah, and then you finish the show, you rap, you hear the last, the imam mm. throw it out, and then you break the fast with everyone as a mm. rap party. Every it was day. great. It was great. Amazing. Mm. How old were your hosts? Um, we had a lot of kids hosting. The, the preacher who, who who gave a sermon from the Quran, if you call it a sermon, he that was just a kid, a twelve year old kid, and um, there was lots of kids from the local school. Um, and the host was a comedian, actually. He was a guy who probably would have been in his late twenties. Brilliant, you, you know. See, here's the thing: like to to say I did a show during Ramadan. Uh, on Nickelodeon. It was actually on, um, it's like Channel 10. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, so it was like we had a block on their free-to-air channel. Oh, right. So here mm. I am on their free-to-air 45 channel. 45 million viewers. 45 million people mm. watching this show in Ramadan. If you don't know much about Islam, you, you get, you're informed by what you see on the news. So mm. you're thinking, oh, it's going to be people mm. saying scary stuff. Yeah. But you're saying there's a 12-year-old kid yeah. reading from yeah, the Quran. totally. And I think that, you know, I, I think unfortunately in terms of like, you know, as as um, a person who's inquisitive and as, you know, one of many, I think that with, I went in there thinking Islam is Islam and then you didn't realise the divisions and the complexity yeah. and Indonesian Islam, I think, is also a little bit influenced by Hinduism and, and, and like, um, animism, you know, just from the history of Indonesia and you look at the, the, the migration of these religions and these peoples and these conquerors, um, it's very different to Arab Islam, and I imagine it's very different to Indian Islam. India is the second biggest Islamic nation. I always think of this story. I had this host called Alia, Alia Khan, and she was a, um, a Muslim girl. Her parent, her mum wore a 
burqa, you know, when, when she did a contract to host a show, brilliant host, she said, I can't show my neck or anything like that, but she looks kind of a modern kid. So, you know, she gives me the rules and, and I haven't really dealt with many, many Muslims. But then at the same time we came around, she came to my place with the whole the production team, we did a brainstorm. And then she gave me a lift on the back of her scooter through, um, uh, through Mumbai. You know, I'm hanging on the back of this, you know, very traditional Islamic girl going through Mumbai and it, it, all these things, you know, you think you know something and you know nothing. And, and I think So how did you come from, so you went from Nickelodeon, but you, then you went back to music. Well, then I went to, from Nickelodeon, then, and then um, I was going to go to Singapore, but then an offer in Korea came up. So they, I was Nickelodeon in Korea. Once again, it was similar to what I'd done in India, which was relaunch um, a channel. And uh-huh. the, the weird thing is, as a person who doesn't speak these languages, is the first thing you've got to do is dubbing. And you come back to your ear and listening to your ear, and I said, right, I, I reckon if you're going to do a show really well, the dubs have got to be fantastic. I want kid actors. And getting kid actors, you've got to follow certain rules. You can't work them too hard. You've got to teach them. You know, so I've got kid actors voicing Dora the Explorer and SpongeBob and all that sort of thing. And I remember just this, um, this, just trusting your instincts with people. Like, you know, when you meet people, it doesn't matter if you don't speak the language, you're trusting them. This person, I reckon, really gets voice dubbing. Yeah. So if we focused on voice dubbing. We focused on just the basics of programming and, and media, and we just got massive growth. And so that was Nickelodeon the first year in Korea. What's, what's the, um, relationship like between you and your translator when you're working in a place like that? Well, in, in, in Korea, I landed and there was one Aussie girl from Strathfield who was a Korean. She was a Korean Aussie, but she lived in Korea for 10 years. But I didn't have translators ever until I got to Japan. And so I, it's really interesting how you um, have to really intensely concentrate. You become a better listener. But I started to, I could follow conversations. So you'd know when to ask and when not to. And you pick up the language. So I'm always good at listening to the language and understanding because I never had a translator in Korea for three years. But I, there will be people who could speak some English. And, and really your role is to say, well, I get what works everywhere, everywhere in the world. And I'm, I'm there to say, well, you don't have to do everything locally. Some things will work that we can import and some ideas. But then it's also important to know what's important to do locally. Mm. So I went landed in, went from Mumbai to Korea, went from, you know, plus 40 to minus 20 or something like so that. So cold there. And, and I just, when I first landed, like any of those cities, I thought, I don't like this city. I don't, you know, I, I, I don't feel it's... I don't, I don't connect with it. And it takes you a while, but then you get through the winter and then you meet. And the thing about Koreans, and I hadn't known much about Korea, is it's quite hard to, to sort of get a breakthrough with them as people. But once you do, you know, you're there. You're there for life and they've got your back and, and they will look after you and they're unbelievably generous, which is really the, the way it is in Asia. Yeah. It's like, I'm a guy, I've got kids. You know, kids opened every door for me anyway. But um, just being patient and being brave, like eat this food, come out to this club, sing this karaoke song. I was like, hey, what am I going to do? I'm going to give it a show. I'm going to die. I'm going to crash and burn. But then they kind of dig it, you know, and, yeah. and, and I wasn't, you know, I lived a local life. I'd go out with them for lunch and you eat at a restaurant every day and we, you know, eat a raw fish, you know, like not a raw fish, but a, a barbecued fish cooked in the street. You'd, you'd eat all sorts of things you know what they are, but you just had to launch in, had to do it. And, yeah. and it was fun. It was fun. And at what point? Where did this, because um, Nickelodeon. Yeah, so Nickelodeon was a year. And then, yeah, and then the, the business went through a whole bunch of change. And they said, well, why don't you also do MTV? You know, you can do it. Nickelodeon, focus on creating. And then we'll give you MTV and then we'll give you some other responsibilities. Because it's all owned by the same company. All owned by the same company. Yeah. And that was the time I went K-pop, which is Korean pop, which was really starting to break out into the, into the West. Um, it was really cracking Japan. It's really time. interesting. I remember I, I learned mm. all this from you. Yeah. It's really interesting. Like, imagine if... 
One Direction had mm. to do everything they did mm. before they reached the age of the compulsory draft. Yeah, exactly. And then they come out of the army and no one cares because- no, you delay been, the draft. There's been 400 bands since There's then. two ways to explain K-pop. One is if you, if you get Michael Jackson, Michael Jackson was not of this earth. You know, Michael Jackson was of a time when, you know, life wasn't so, was kind of tough. I think came out of a depression, you know, the American depression and the oil crisis. And you see Michael Jackson, like he is- I can't just be Michael Jackson. He is out of this world. And so that's how Asians really like their pop stars to be. They want to be aspirational and just, I can't imagine this person sleeping in a bed or eating a normal meal. Um, and then Nirvana came along and it was dudes in ripped jeans who looked like they just were people we knew getting on stage. And they kind of killed it for them, you know, because in Asia it's like, no, Michael Jackson, he is a demigod. Yeah. Um, and so they hold on to that Michael Jackson dream. And then they borrowed from Motown, the factory, the hits factory. You learn deportment. You have the best songwriters, the best house band, producers. So I'd go to these Korean K-pop um, record label or management offices and you'd have the gym, you'd have the booking guy, you'd have the choreographer, the, you know, everything in this one building. I loved it. Like I was never a huge – initially it was I was shocked by these very – like Korean pop was such an affront to my musical taste, but then I got it, you know, and it's like anything, you, it's really, it's exciting. And you see these kids who've been training for five years and I, and I love that discipline and dedication. Yeah. Um, and so I so did you've got photos with people who are just gods. Yeah, and who no one has ever heard of in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> but if you show them the Korean, like, oh Yeah, God. no, I tell them, well, my, my favourite story is around Psy, is that Psy, um, we were doing a, a concert series. So I was recording, I started recording a lot of music again in Korea and then you have kind of the pop stuff. So when in a, every second Tuesday, you'd get about 30 groups who'd come in and perform, and our, and our office was in an old cinema, and said, so turn up, here's my backing video, here's my backing tape, bow, very nice to meet you, thank you for having us. They've done their makeup in the boardroom, Koreans are really hardy people. Okay, do a quick mic check, great, let's go, two songs, perform, thank you, bow, move on, next act would come in, and we just do that. Then we also did a series of, there's a, lot of, there's a sort of an older soul tradition, like any country that's been occupied, you know, for a long time, you have a, a, that big soul influence from the American soldiers. So we did this series of live concerts, and one of the acts that they, the, the sponsor really wanted was Psy, and I said, who is Psy? And the team goes, no, he's just, I, I, th I, don't, I think he's past it, you know, he's a big, he's a, you know, he's very well known. And this is in 2011 or something. And I was like, and they said, just look, you can't, you, whatever you do, don't book Psy. It's not going to work. He's, he's wrong for the brand. And I remember having this conversation and I thought, I never thought much about it. You know, I think in the end our schedules didn't meet up, but I, we were really reluctant to take him. And then, you know, two years later, became the most watched thing on YouTube ever. Gangnam <laughs> Style is the greatest thing ever. Yeah, yeah. But he was, he was exactly what we're talking about. He's a guy who was in a, in a K-pop band before mm. the army. Yeah. And after the army, he'd come back. Yeah, he, he tried to go out. Of the, he tried. He got accused of draft dodging, actually, which is the biggest no-no. No one gets out of the draft. Wow. And um, he had, you know, he had quite a wealthy family, but he, um, he, he's a comic. He does great parodies. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so you've gone from. So I'm doing both. I'm doing MTV and. Yeah, but then you've gone from, uh, you know, producing a live television show off the back of a truck with mm. three commercial. I mean, sorry, consumer grade. Cameras. Cameras, mm. plugged into a satellite dish to doing the um, MTV yeah. Asia Music yeah, Awards. Yeah, yeah. Well, I did two Kids' Choice Awards in Jakarta, oh, and right. I brought up um, Bernie Zelvis, the director who'd worked with us forever, and great, great photos of he's, yeah. you know, he's got this crew in Indonesia looking over him, and it was chaos, guys in thongs and welding half an hour before the show's about to begin. But, you know, rainstorm means we had to delay the live show by 20 minutes, and you just kind of roll with that, you know, and that's very South Asian. Then you get into North Asian where it's unbelievably precise. We did a, a, a video music awards in Japan 
And seriously, they came in, you know, in a, in a live show where there's just so much that you, you're always making up time or, or, or trying to save time. And I remember they came in within three seconds of the run, the rundown. You have a rundown, which is a two hour show and you have multiple acts. We had Black Eyed Peas, Green Day, Katy Perry, big Japanese acts, big Korean acts. It was the most precise, best lights, best screens, best staging ever. And I remember being in the control room and thinking, like, oh, what can I, I can't tell these people how to do anything. They're brilliant at it. It was amazing experience. That was Japan. How did it, how did it feel when that show wrapped? When it was like, and we're clear. It was like, wow, that was the slickest thing I've ever done. It was just amazing. And um, I, everything was, the, the music was just really diverse and really good everything sounded good and um you know i suppose my bigger influence was i'm a storyteller i'm about about editorial and, and i think you know we people aren't gonna no one ever complained in all my career about the quality of the sound necessarily or the quality of the picture and that's how we got away with it but people did complain about the narrative you, you know, i don't like the story you told i don't like who you put in the story you know and and that was really about how do you shape this narrative? How do you pace things? How do you, at the time we were really thinking, and that was the early days of social media, but you need your big moment in the first 15 minutes of a show. When we started, save everything for the end of the two-hour show, that big moment, everyone's going to keep watching. Yeah. By that stage, no one's going to do that. You've got to have peaks built into the show and you've got to hit hard in that first 10 to 15 minutes. You've got to have something that everyone wants to talk about. And that's kind of what's changed about about. TV, but it's really just formatics. You're just changing your story. So you, you, you're back in Australia. You made a lot of, you know. Well, I went from Korea. Moved to Japan for two years or a year oh, and a that's half. That's right. Yeah, yeah. You so Japan was a pure music MTV focus. Amazing. And um, how did it feel coming back to music after having left? Gone. I've well, it's good because it was different do. music. Yeah. You know what I mean, and I, and I really love the fact that I was just working with local music, Japanese and Korean. You know, music. You think about the output that comes out of America every year, and you know what we think is the music, the world's music. But imagine if there's, you know, two times that coming out of India or or that amount coming out of Korea or two times in Japan or China, like the volume of music, the Philippines, Indonesia, like it's just unbelievable. There's so much amazing music and we always have this sort of, this filter of arts, just, you know, kind of bad boy girl bands. It's not that, you know, you just saw incredible girl rock and roll bands from Okinawa and all that sort of thing. I love living in Japan. Then I went back to Korea to run the network. So the network is the Viacom TV network. And that was a different thing where you're trying to change the structure of the business and find a local partner and do a JV. So that was like MBA stuff. And I was like, oh, this is a learning experience. Wow, man. Yeah. Um, and then, I, then, then when I did the deal, I did the deal that sort of put me out of a job in a way because it was a JV to say, right, we, we're giving the keys over to someone. We're handing them the kids and then we want them back as healthy teenagers, which was our brands and our business. And, um, you know, we found a really great local um, free-to-wear partner and they were going to um, – uh, that was, that was the best thing for the business. Amazing partners. You know, they produced these incredible dramas which had currency across Asia. They were just the full service sort of network. So I did that and then I got um, offered the job back in Australia, Nickelodeon Australia. So I came back and um, Australia's been a foreign place ever since. When you leave Australia and come back, it's very strange. You never quite adjust. You'd, you'd know that. I'm finding it yeah. very, very strange. Mm. I'm finding it very weird to be back here. Um, and the differences between Australian and American culture, which I didn't notice when I first travelled, because mm. it just kind of looks. Everyone speaks a version of English that I know, and mm. things look a little similar. The the, the couldn't be two separate cultures. Mm. Uh, the English spoke, both speaking English. And I think you worry more about where is Australia going. You know, I think coming back. Oh and God damn, I do. Yeah. I suppose it's an election year, but you know, for the first time in my life, I. I'm an undecided voter, and it's not because I can't choose two or three great choices. I don't 
find I can't find anyone I engage with. Yeah, right. And I and I it makes you and that's where I feel I feel like a real outsider. But then I think everyone feels like that at the moment. But you've come back to Australia. It's such. Some people will say it's a challenging time. I would, it is. I would like to say it's an incredibly exciting time. The world be, of media is incredibly exciting. To be, intelli- yeah. mm. to be in television is such an incredibly exciting time. This this show will probably air after, it'll air after the election. So we've either got either a promise that uh, the internet to your house will be faster than any analog TV signal or cable mm. signal or not. But there's going to be a point where that happens. At, gonna- at its fastest, career is still 50 times faster last year. So that was the thing is when you live in Korea and Japan is, and that's perhaps my thing about Australia is we've got to realize that this isn't it. This is, we haven't, we're not at the pinnacle of evolution. You know, we have to look at what, what are other people doing? We have to be open to those influences. And I think what's changed, you know, in the time I've been away and probably you as well is we've become sort of angry and, and, and you, you read about this a lot in any sort of um, public forum, but why are we so unhappy? Why are we so angry and scared? Because, you know, in 1867, more than half the Australian population was of Chinese descent. Like, what are we worried about? We've been there. You know, I, I think that it's, I hate the sort of fear and the fear of the media, the fear, you know, the fear of yeah. our lives. And, you know, if you work in media, it is, it's changing super fast. But you can say it's changing and it's bad, or you can say this is the most exciting time to be alive. It's, um, I, I got off the plane America's a $7 minimum wage and no healthcare. Mm. I get here to Australia, it's $16.50. And mm. if you break your leg, mm. it may take a few hours, but you can get it fixed for free. Yeah. It's no other country in the world like that. No. And, and, you know, thinking about how we grew up and how we grew up in the suburbs and we were happy, you know, our childhoods were unbelievably happy. And maybe it's hard to go backwards in yeah. life and say, well, actually, if I reduce my standard living, maybe I can't have my personal trainer, my yoga coach, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I can breathe clean air. And that's something that, you know, I, living in Korea, I had yellow dust. I had acid rain for a month of the year. I had nuclear fallout. I had wars. I had, you know, multiple terrorist attacks in different places. You know, I had to shut my office in Korea because we were being bombed by the North Koreans. You know, and I'm coming back here and everyone's like, oh, it's the boat people. It's this. And, you know, I, I, I um, it, it just, it is, you know, it's just a bit depressing, I think, because there's so much opportunity. You're in a space where you can, Obviously, under a massive mandate, but you're in a space where you're able to provide content for the youth of Australia that mm. has. I mean, I'm sure you don't have an editorial say to that extent. You're still running Dora the Explorer and mm. you know other things that Nick put out, but you're able to culturally go. Well, hang on a second. I've got all this stuff that I've seen from all over the world, and this is informing my decisions within this network. And here's why you should trust your kids to watch mm. the content that I'm putting out yep. there. Um, how has that changed your experience overseas? How has that changed the kind of content that you're putting to air under the Nickelodeon brand in Australia? The piece that I, you know, I think um, even when we're at Channel V, like I think the whole point was we always wanted to be inclusive and respectful of our audience. You know, and I, there are times when I just thought that when we were would be doing any sort of show, I just said, look, let's make sure everyone can enjoy this. Let's not go over their heads. Let's not... Um, having jokes, let's let's be as inclusive as as possible. And I think with with big Nickelodeon, that's a really really key thing. Is I want all kids to feel like they belong. Like I want them to feel safe and trusted and all those sorts of things. And but one thing I'm really really interested in, having lived in Asia and also being really mindful that we live in an age of um, educational inflation. Whether you believe that within 20 years there's going to be 600 million more members of the Chinese middle class or the Asian middle class, either way, that's 600 more million people who will have discretionary income, which they will spend on education. So 
when I was at school, if you finished your HSC, I was like, well, hey, you've done well. Now you can... This is finishing high school. Yeah, probably high school. You've got... There's a safety net. And you did an undergraduate degree. You did an arts degree. And that sort of was, 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 you know, you got to read some pretty cool books and, you know, and all that sort of thing. But now, you know, I think that the, the pressure is that um, with a rising Asia that um, education is of utmost importance. It's It's... Educated kids are like your superannuation. And I see that really changing. Even my kids' very multicultural school in northern Sydney, a nice area of Sydney, um, kids are all going to academies. They're doing extra training. The competition to get into schools is really intense. And I think that the Asian century, as it relates to Australia, is that um, there's a lot more pressure on education. Kids are perhaps a little bit more um, conservative but they're also mindful of what they need to achieve. And they need to achieve a lot. They need to work really hard. So with, with Nick Jr., it's like, I want to make that fun. I want to make reading a book. If I can get a, a young boy to read a book and love it, it's, I think it's fine if he's reading a SpongeBob book or if he's reading a, um, a, a text from the Premier's reading list or something like that. So I really, being aware of the, pre- the, the pressures of a kid's life and the pressures that parents have for their kids or they put on their kids you know my, my role is is to facilitate that to facilitate that sort of um the fun in life make you know do everything in my power to make a kid smile that's that's my mantra whatever it is and my social media is is the playground you know and this is for the older end of my business for the younger end of my business it's probably the mother's group or or something like that but i really think that doing something really responsible we have a really strict sense of standards and practices there's so much that we won't do or we won't do commercially there are things we won't do you know we're really clear about messages you know see those kids toys ads batteries uh, sold separately actual um, use of this toy may differ in real life you know all yeah, those yeah. sorts of things it, it may may feel onerous but um, a good day is when i make a kid laugh when i make them smile when i make them feel empowered and that's like that's why I love what I do now. You know, that's what I loved about everything. Every job I've been lucky enough to have is, you know, those moments, you know, the, the famous moment we captured once where a kid goes, it's all about the music and these kids are screaming and he's had that, that musical epiphany that we've all had, that, that sort of rite of passage. Whereas for a younger kid, it's like, I just heard the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life, you know. Yeah. That's, that's kind of what I do and that's, that's what, where it sort of comes the full circle as, as a dad. I want my kids to, to grow up feeling safe, you know, and, and feeling like, you know, they're, they're part of a group they're trusted. And schools do amazing jobs these days. But I do feel that, that the future is, is more competitive, you know, mm-hmm. and maybe Australia is not going to be winning the Ashes or World Cups in the future, but maybe we'll be having amazing startups and incredible engineers and inventors maybe that's the future which i think is equally excite as exciting i think that's the transitional phase and to be surrounded by a region where education is, is of such importance whether it's cultural or religious but also just it's it's a clear path to improving your life i think that's only a good thing for Australians to be super excited about is like this smart generation of Australians drawing upon the wealth of, and, and, you know, of both knowledge, but also the sort of material worth of the region, the growth. You know, that's, that's kind of what keeps me going. It's really exciting. You make me want to have kids so I can sit <laughs> in front of Nickelodeon, man. Like really, like it just, just hearing you talk with such passion about, about your job and your role and what you see your role as with, with this brand and with this channel, mm. it just makes me feel so happy to know that kids are being sat in front of a TV mm. because parents are busy yep. and it's easy to sit for a kid in mm. front of the TV or give the kid yep. an iPad and you're taking the reins going, it's cool, mm. got this, yep. I'm going to yep. be we'll all right. Breach, we'll never breach that trust. You know, and I think when we, even when you look at a movie, we'll never play a movie trailer for, for an M-rated film. You know, and 
it, it's just the level of, of, of care that goes into, into the kids' brands and not just us, you know, our competitors as well. I, you know, I talk to, it's interesting in my world, I talk to my competitors a lot because I always believed that if, if I'm doing a, the best I can do with, with the tools that I have, then who cares about the competition, right? Like they inspire me to be better. They make me feel a little bit insecure. But, you know, I always felt that about any business you're in is competition's a good thing. Maybe, yeah. You know, and, and I think uh, no matter what area you're in, I, I think that there's really, really great options available for, 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 my, for my audiences and for parents and things like that. Um, before, I, we've been talking a long time and this has been so great to have a chat with you. I'm so grateful that you've made the time because you're obviously a very, very busy man and you've made the time to come and, and, and sit down with me and put this into perpetuity. What would you say? I'm going to, I'm going to mm-hmm. ask you two questions and I'm going to say thank you for something. Um, I'll say thank you for two things. <laughs> uh, somebody wants a career in media. What would you tell them to do? I think you'd do what you and I did. It was you be what you want to be. And for me it was that first step of saying, well, I'm not the smartest kid in school, but I really like writing. It's really fun and school's not letting giving me that outlet or it doesn't have those facilities. So I just started writing. So I wrote a magazine to, to make my friends laugh. And uh, then I started to send it to people I didn't know. And they said, oh, you've got to send it to this friend. So I was just, I was it. I was at my typewriter, you know, and, and, and making magazines. And then I was thinking, well, no one in my family's ever worked in media, but I, I like this show called After Dark with Donnie Sutherland, which is a very early live music TV show on Channel 7. And I thought, how do I, you know, then I started asking around and I went and did work experience, you know, and, and I think it was creating that journey yourself. I didn't know any of my family, and I don't know if I think you did either. It's like media was this foreign thing where we said, I really want to be, and I, didn't, I don't think you had to, I didn't have to crush anyone or put anyone down to get there, but I just was it. But I what said, about, right, what right. about now when everyone's got a camera on their phone? Mm. Cameras were hard to come by. Well, I think it's now it's about having this original voice. I was thinking about this in the context of music where everyone says every chord combination's been written, but I think imagine how I just don't think we've explored it. We've even scratched the surface of, of, of lyrics in music. Like it feels like lyrically we haven't really progressed like all the, the word combinations. We've got nowhere near exploring mm-hmm. that. You know, it's not like a, a guitar with, with, with a finite number of chords, you know, in vocab and, and the opportunity. So I would say now that having an original voice, like I, I think that um, I was thinking the other day, a really great blog would be someone who doesn't criticize or anything, but has this, total unique vision on every aspect of life. It would be so unique. But you've got to find that voice and, and sort of maybe it's not popular now, but we've all learnt from fan, being fans of pop culture that, you know, today's hit was something we all dismissed. <laughs> and then just yeah. and then just do it. Be it. Do it yeah. and do it. And yeah. do it. Yeah, there's lots of people who, you know, who I've who you know, who I've who I meet along the way and and that's all I can say. I can't, you know, I, I can't just you can't just create a job for a person, but then people who come to you and they've just invested the passion, you know, in, invest in their passion and, and, and their work. It's really infectious. And positivity, it's like so hard to be positive, but I think that if you, when you meet peace and people who are optimistic and, you know, and, and, and respectful, I think it's really good. But you've got to do it. You've got to get your hours up, you know, and there's lots of ways. You know, there's community radio. There's, there are blogs. You've got the, you know, the tools that you have to have a voice are unbelievable. Getting your hours up. There's no, I mean, we, we keep talking about the 10,000 hours thing, the Malcolm Gladwell thing. I remember reading that book and just going, oh, wow, well, now it makes sense. Mm. Now it makes sense why I was able to just walk into Channel V. Mm. Uh, I'd done six nights a week of yeah. night to dawn shifts by the time I got there mm. and been terrible at it. Yeah. But by the time I got onto live television, I had that in, under my belt. And then 
three hours live a day, five days a week. By the time I got to idle, mm. I was like, oh, I know what a live thing is. I'll be okay, boys. <laughs> you know, um, but my ego had taken over by then. But that's that's a sort of story for another time. And you doubt yourself and you had setbacks and all those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, so I'm not going to ask you another question. I'm just going to say thank you because you briefly mentioned it. And I think it's super, super important that you be acknowledged for it that without you and certainly without your vision, just a giant swathe of Australian music would never have been visually recorded because the ABC, whose kind of default job that was, went yeah, through yeah. a bit of trouble when we were... Mm, they didn't have any shows, I don't think. It no, they didn't period. have any shows for a few years there and there was nowhere else that Australian music, live music, was mm. being recorded except us mm. at V. And because of that, you've put this into... You know, into the vaults, or yeah. some bloke is going to be dusting off the the camera like you were, <laughs> and um, yeah. and finding that, and whatever you did in in, in, in like that's like you giving back to that Capital Theatre because someone thought mm. we've got to film Midnight Oil, do mm. this show. That mm. was, you know, you've done that. Besides the fact that you've also got to put on the massive biggest show in the history of you know <laughs> Japanese television and you know this incredible stuff in Indonesia, um, it's it's amazing, man. And I'm I'm just I, I couldn't be more thankful to what you've done for my career either because you made it safe for me and you put boundaries around where I couldn't go mm. in a really lovely way. Mm. But you made it safe for me to explore that. And so then by the time I got to Idol, I was like, oh. Yeah, I remember the. I remember that you and uh, I think Renat. My memory of you know as a final point is that having done those ten thousand hours, that you're able to walk into a, a live situation in front of probably the biggest Australian TV audiences of the time and be totally relaxed. And I think the producers probably freaked out they did. because in, in there's no safety net in TV, but you guys had that safety net because you'd failed a million times. Absolutely. Um, so when it came to the crunch. You just, you, you, it was, it was comfortable, and that's what I always admire. I've never wanted to be on camera, but you know, everyone has their their, their role and their place. But the, the the trust that comes from someone who's done the volume means that you know you always go into these situations feeling like I feel good, and now we can push it, and that's when the magic happens. <laughs> Without a shadow of a doubt, I'm so grateful that the man who lives in a pineapple under the sea has somewhere safe to live with you. <laughs> Ben Richardson, thank you. Thank you. So that's Ben Richardson. He's a great man to know. So get to know him. Follow him on Twitter at BenLife. And I think you'd agree, you know, uh, the world is what the world is. People put their kids in front of the TV. They let them watch Nick Jr. on Nickelodeon. And uh, I think you'd agree that they're in very safe hands with uh, a guy like Ben looking after them. He's an amazing guy. And his kids are fantastic. His kids are He's a great guy. His wife's a great woman. Just everything's great. You'll love him. Get to know him. At Ben Life on Twitter. You can find him there. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Uh, if you like this show, please go to the podcast page, osherginsburg.com, click podcast. And if you choose to, please retweet this. Please just click the tweet button and tweet out a link that you're listening. And don't forget, please go to Instagram. Find the, oops, I blocked you. Uh, let me know your Twitter handle and I'll try and re-add you. Next week is going to be an amazing week on the show. I have the pleasure, the honour of having as my guest, Zoe Bell. Who's Zoe Bell? She was Uma Thurman's stunt double in all the Kill Bill films. 
She's the woman who was in Grindhouse and Death Proof. You know, she's like she's the one on the front of the car, holding onto the front of the car as they fang through the back streets. She's an amazing woman. She's a stunt woman. She's just releasing her new film, an independent movie, which we're going to talk about. She's an incredible woman. Uh, she's a, a really inspiring human being. I can't wait for you to meet her as well. Thank you so much for being a part of this show. Thanks for not minding that I had a week off. I'm just thrilled that you're listening. Uh, honestly, this is just one of the most satisfying things I've ever done in my career. The authenticity of what you and I get to do here, the conversation that you and I get to have, you as a listener, me as the broadcaster, and, and the third party, my guest. This is is just the most satisfying thing that I can do. And the feedback I get from you just makes my day. I'll see you again on Twitter. I'll try. If if I've blocked you, please uh, pop that post on Instagram and, uh, and I'll block you. Until next week, thank you so much for listening. Uh, I wish you really beautiful, peaceful sleep and dreaming of beautiful things. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.